Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. We highlight the research of our university's graduate students every other Tuesday at 6 p.m. Today, we are interviewing Jonathan Rom. Hi, John. How's it going? Good. Fine. Thank you. Um, while I'm interested in talking to John about his baking endeavors and his love for musical theater, what we will start off with is his um, research uh, as a graduate student doing a master's in public health. Now, John, you are studying a sort of uh, mishmash of health promotion, economics, law, and epidemiology as a master's in public health. So what interested you in public health? So what was really interesting is showing up and realizing that there are so many things you know nothing about and over the course of a couple semesters, you can actually have a, a verbose conversation about the topic. So everything I know about economics, Canadian law, epidemiology, I've learned in the classes that I've taken in my program. Um, you were mentioning that your master's program has this really interesting way of, of teaching you these things, which is a case-based teaching method, right? Yeah. Uh, unlike, you know, regular classrooms or any research work. Tell us more about that. So the case-based method is uh, it's fairly new. It's not uh, tried out in a lot of places, but the way it works is that we'll get readings about two weeks before any given class, and then after doing those readings, we're meant to come into that class and present our knowledge, not just on the topics that are being discussed, but also the situation that's outlined in the case. So the people involved, the, the situation that they're trying to deal with, the backgrounds that they come from, and the different aspects of the problem that they have to deal with. So we could be doing a case in health promotion, and suddenly you have to hearken back to something you learned in economics because it's germane in the conversation that you're having right then. All right, so just chiming in here, could you take us back for a second and... Could you walk us through what um, your program is, this public health? It sounds like it's, um, sorry, like a, a combination, a you know, sort of interweaving of all sorts of different uh, areas of study. It sounds really cool. It is pretty cool because it's ensuring the conditions in which populations can be healthy. And that means a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, I think we spent a whole class once just discussing what does healthy mean? How, how, do we, how do we define that? What level do you have to be to be considered healthy? And trying to determine that for a population as opposed to just a patient-on-patient -patient basis, that's a, that's a whole field that has a lot of different things that go into it. So if you don't understand uh, anything about the laws that govern trying to make a new program in Canada, then you could come up with something brilliant, but it'll be shut down the next day because you have no idea what you're talking about. So that's something really interesting that I never really thought about. Could you just briefly tell us what does it actually mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be healthy? That's a really good question. Uh, I define it as in a situation where you can wake up in the morning 
and you can go about your day unimpeded by uh, a, a disability that you might already have or a condition that's leading up to disabilities. So a lot of people have high blood pressure, but a lot of the things that lead up to high blood pressure are things like obesity and uh, similar comorbidities. And if you are, if public health is doing its job right, then we're helping you live in a society that gears you towards not being likely to be in that situation. Uh, also with that, there's some very silent things that you don't know about that we do. Uh, you know, fluoridating the water was a very old thing that public health came up with that has got under some controversy. But in it's, it's, it's undoubtedly one of the biggest public health triumphs in the last uh, 20, in the 21st century. And coupled with that are a bunch of other things that public health does and doesn't get a lot of credit for or a lot of money for, for that matter. But we, uh, we do consistently to make sure that society stays healthy. So one other thing. We just got a question uh, from out back here on the side. One of our participant uh, sort of viewers. <laughs> uh, so the question is, what about mental health issues? Do you discuss that at all? So, so it's funny because my... My background had almost nothing to do with mental health. I've talked about mental health more in the last year than I think I've ever discussed it in my life. We, uh, we've had several uh, different classes uh, in, in our, several of our courses come up and talk about how are we actually going to change the landscape of mental health in this country? Is it just going to be overnight where suddenly everyone's texting, hey, hashtag Bell, let's talk, and suddenly everyone's aware of it? Or does it have to go a step beyond that? Do we start reallocating our money based on our understanding of this is important, this is going to be affecting generations to come, and this is where our money should be going? That's, that's public health's role. We're going to be the indicators for that uh, for generations to come. So would it be accurate then to say that a lot of what you're talking about, a lot of what you're learning and doing um, is related to policy? Absolutely. We, our, our, uh, our definition of policy kind of changes day from day in class to class. But when we are making the decisions that are dictating how we look at all the different issues that land on the desk of a chief health medical officer or the, uh, the, the sanitation departments, you need to be able to determine, hey, what policies are going to be reflective of the problems that are facing the population right now? And which population am I representing when I'm trying to fix this problem? And what are the, what's the collateral damage that I'm going to do by focusing on this thing and not focusing on another thing? What's the opportunity cost of that? Um, so, John, one of the things that you were mentioning that you want to do after your master's is, um, you know, you want to go to med school, but your 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 goal is, the, you, you were mentioning, is to open this geriatric care center where it's a sort of a one-stop shop for the elderly where you get doctors, nurses, dietitians, and psychologists all under one roof. So what's the current state of geriatric care here in Canada? And, um, you know, what are your plans to change it and why do you plan to change this? So uh, let's, let's imagine a, a relatively healthy young man in Canada and his, uh, his Meepums is living in an old folks home in palliative care in all these different situations that we've set up for the elderly. And 
she needs consistent care, but not just consistent care from her doctor. She needs a nurse who knows her specific situation. She needs to go to a dietitian because she's been dealing with uh, obesity for years. She needs to talk to a psychologist because suddenly, as her entire life begins to change, she feels very alone and very scared. Well, wouldn't you agree that if I, if you were in that position, you would want that to be a one-stop shop? You would want to go to a building and know that on any given floor, you have people who you can go see that are communicating with one another and aren't just these disparate professionals that you go to and re-explain your story again and again over and over. So that's kind of how I see the uh, the landscape changing. Uh, if I were to uh, reach my goal and, and create what I want to create, the issues with that, the challenges with that, is that change in healthcare is amazingly slow. And uh, like for example, uh, the local integrated health network, ALIN, is something that's been around for a while, and I'm willing to bet that you have no idea what that is, and you've nope. never heard of it before. No. Do you hear about the CMN? No. Not at all. Lynn no. is such an integral part of the way healthcare is organized in Ontario. Nobody knows a thing about it, and it's so important. And because nobody knows anything about it, it might even be on its way out, even though it took so long to develop and so long to form. So I know that if I'm going to get my idea to kind of get off the ground, I'm going to need groundswell, and I'm going to need the skills that I learned from my master's in public health. So it sounds like one of the, the challenges facing sort of change in healthcare is, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that people don't often think about healthcare, about these resources, unless they actually have to use them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it's hard to maintain momentum for change when, you know, only a few people ever care about it for very sort of brief periods of time. Mm -hmm. Sporadically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, consider this past election. We had a federal election. How many times did you hear healthcare being debated amongst the candidates? I probably heard it maybe a few times in a very small degree, but the 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 effect that it has on the population is huge. Um, John, one of the things uh, that I really find interesting is your interest in um, geriatric care and, uh, you know, and your, and your love and care for the elderly. Um, do you have someone in your family, do you have a personal basis for, uh, for your, you know, for your interests? So my grandfather, bless him, is one of the coolest guys I've ever met in my life. Uh, he's 93, 94. Uh, a few years ago, he got on Facebook, which I think is absolutely amazing. <laughs> and he's just, he's just this incredibly kind and giving person. But what's fascinating about him is that he's been sick more times than I can keep count track of. He's had, he's had cancer, I think, three separate times. And the man not only is still kicking, but he's kind of representative of this population that I love. I love elderly patients because they are the best patients. You talk to a kid, the kid starts to cry, you don't know what's wrong and they can't tell you. You talk to an adult, the adult wincing in pain, he, wants to, he or she wants to live forever, they won't tell you what's wrong. An elderly patient? They'll tell you everything. They'll tell you everything you've ever wanted to know. They'll tell you more than everything you wanted to know. And your and your and your job as a professional doesn't become trying to pull teeth. It becomes how do I sift through this information and identify what is important and what I need to know. 
did the current um, sort of you were mentioning about Lin um, when so he must have had a first hand experience with this system and you must have seen certain deficiencies in the existing system for you to feel that it needs a change um, by the time you're done your masters in med school yeah so the, so the network isn't a, a bad model by any means and there's also um, a complementary model, the uh, Community Health uh, Center, mm-hmm. which is created for specific populations. And the reason they are uh, geared towards certain populations is that certain populations are disadvantaged. And a big thing in uh, public health is equity and trying to get everyone to be at the same level, which means that if, for example, the Aboriginal community doesn't have equal access to health care, then we create community health care uh, centers to give them access to that. But those are based on race, you know, and based on socioeconomic status. There's one, uh, I'm going to be doing a practicum in uh, downtown Toronto at the association for these centers, but the center that's right there is dealing with a population that has a fairly slow socioeconomic status, but they're not based on age. And if I want my, you know, my population of choice to feel like they have access in a way that they don't have right now, it's going to have to alter slightly to be geared towards everyone who's disadvantaged, not just the people who have momentum behind them or are, have been identified by decades and decades of research and only now we're getting a move on it. You know, uh, when you're talking about Lynn and your plans, one of the things that I feel is... Um and what Yemen was mentioning is this whole thing of communication. People simply don't know about it. And one of the things that you were mentioning is your your interest in making a podcast, right? A, a health-based podcast, right? Eventually. Tell us something about that. So one of my classes, uh, Health Communication, taught by, taught by uh, Dr. Shannon Sibold, is very indicative of where we're going with how we talk about health and public health in that a lot of the messages for a modern generation are going to have to be in a way that's accessible to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of social media, I'm a big fan of Twitter, but I'm, I listen to, I would say, too many podcasts because I like to listen to the information that I think is important. I feel like I retain it better mm-hmm. and I feel like I understand it better when someone's whispering it softly into my ear as opposed to reading it in a textbook. And if that's the case, then everything that I want to communicate uh, for example, like I wanna, I wanna run a uh, one day host a podcast about uh, colitis and Crohn's disease, and talking about the new research that's being done in that field. And if I'm going to do that, I'd rather not have it be in print. I'd rather have it be my wonderful voice <laughs> sending sending it out to across the land. Well, you know, uh, speaking of uh, wonderful voices, I also know that as a volunteer in the Western Foot Patrol, you are also a wonderful baker, right? (laughs) Apparently, the grapevine tells me that staff attendance has apparently increased just because you're an amazing baker. So is that, is baking something that for you, you know, does it help you relax? Uh, Does it help you sort of, is it more of a meditative experience or you just can't get enough of cupcakes and danishes? What's what's going on, John? So, well, here's, well, here's <laughs> and what thing. are its implications for public health? Yes, <laughs> what are the implications? So, I used to tell, I used to tell my, um, the, the, uh, the OM, the operations manager, in that 
I'm slowly going to give him diabetes and use him as a test subject for all of my theories <laughs> on public health and medicine. Because, but I'm going to do it very slowly and in a controlled manner, week to a week. case study, uh, if you will. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. And so this case study that I made was based on uh, my girlfriend at the time is a fantastic baker, and she... Uh, the, the way I got my first date with her was by asking her if she would teach me how to bake. And she actually went through with it. And when she did, I realized, oh, it's just chemistry. I can do chemistry. I graduated. Right. I, I, I passed my class. Right. I remember that. So when I became good at it, I realized, hey, these people, these foot patrollers are coming week after week. They're showing up and they're sacrificing a few hours of their time to make our campus safer. Safer. Why don't we recognize that? Why don't we get, give them something in return on a weekly basis? And also, why don't I give myself an excuse to make delicious treats, which I get, then get to snack on when I bring them to Foot Patrol? Right, so now I'm getting images in my head of <laughs> a podcast titled Cookies and Colitis. I will expect royalty to take that name. Well, that's the only but, name you can have, really. <laughs> so, I was thinking about this, and... I mean, one of the difficulties in talking about a lot of these conditions is sort of the squeamishness, the uncomfortable factor. People, perhaps uh, understandably, don't really like talking about like bowel conditions, mm-hmm. about you know things that r- relate to the toilet. Say, do you think that you know in doing a podcast with um, you know your your charming, soothing voice, mm-hmm. <laughs> does yes. it make it easier? to to learn about to talk about to have almost like a one-way conversation about these conditions that people have difficulty you know speaking about face to face i would say that when talking about something that serious and kind of that maybe uncomfortable as much as i'd love to make an asmr show about colitis I, i feel like i feel like that might cross the line but if that's crossing the line then what's before the line is me talking about it in a very stern and frank way that i feel is disarming and i feel like is honest because the the most the most important thing that i can say about what I do and what I learn about is making research accessible. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that any researcher face faces. And I believe that learning how to gear a message to an audience is what I learn every day in my program. And so if a podcast is something that people feel is accessible, and then I can talk about it in a frank an accurate way that's current and new and exciting, then I think that's the uh, best possible combination to get that message across. And Speaking if only there was a good uh, uh, podcast and radio show that was talking about making research accessible. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, <laughs> every second Tuesday, 6 p.m. <laughs> um, so, uh, John, uh, speaking of exciting, uh, you know, accessible things, uh, you know, you mentioned your love for musical theater. Oh, musical right? theater. Why is that? What, what, what is it so exciting? What is exciting What isn't exciting what, about it? So I, well. say, so I told you I listen to a crazy amount of podcasts. Right, right. right. And I, podcasts are a great way to consume culture in a very succinct way, especially when you don't have a lot of time, and I certainly don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the most reflective art form of culture, shockingly, is musical theater. Musical theater evolves 
to be acceptable to an audience, but also s- certain shows stay timeless because they harken back to things in society that don't change. Uh, so my favorite example is that we've gone from not the earliest show, but one of the early shows, Oklahoma, being geared towards an audience that was off to World War II and needed to feel, hey, I need something to to come back to. I need something really fun and exciting and beautiful to think about when I'm thinking about my home. And so instead of thinking about, oh, wow, this is going to be hell, they're thinking, oh, what a beautiful morning. <laughs> and if that's, if that's what you're thinking about when you're going to war, then that's going to stay with you for your entire life. And then you go to today and we're talking about shows like Hamilton. Hamilton's huge right now. And Hamilton is a show completely written in, in rap and modern style and it's about the first uh, treasury uh, secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton. And it's also like an all-black cast. Is that right? It, there's, it's a very ethnic cast. So it's not all black, but it, but they're they're reflective of the way America looks right now. And I think that's brilliant because I think shows reflect what we feel right now. Um, a, a show, a show like Next to Normal, which is about mental health. Mental health has exploded onto the scene in everyone's mind because of all this awareness. And suddenly there are shows singing about one woman's struggle with the loss of her son and how that's changed her entire life and her ability to function. It, public health, I, I love to, I'd love to uh, sneak it back in there. <laughs> public health has a place in musical theater because I think musical theater has a place in our entire society. Um, is there, um, are there shows uh, in, 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 say, musical theater or theater in general that discuss, you know, um, very basic, uh, you know, issues and problems with, with, with the elderly population? Like, like what about love and companionship? Oh, okay. Oh, what about see, those things? I see, I see why you're hinting right? here. <laughs> so, okay, so anyone who is a fan of musical theater is probably going to recognize uh, the show The Producers, which has an entire... Uh, song dedicated to uh, the main character running around New York and stooping every uh, old lady in New York to get money for the show that supposedly is going to be a flop. And my my academic interest in the geriatric population is very broad, but when it comes to talking about their health, I think the most understudied and under-discussed aspect is sexual health. And I found it funny that that's how it showed up in musical theater, and that's how it only shows up in musical theater. Something funny because it's universally uncomfortable to talk about, but it's still an issue. And stigma pops up in all these different things. Like we've been talking about mental health. Stigma pops up in mental health. Well, stigma ta- comes up when you're talking about your peepums and your meepums doing it <laughs> and not using protection. But STIs are rampant in that population. So I feel like. The, the the shows that I watch give me an indication of kind of what I should be thinking about in culture, what I think should be thinking about in society. And then when you put a, turn a critical academic eye to it, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this didn't, this didn't come from nothing. This is a real issue. We can actually talk about this. We can actually do something about it. I feel like this is like a beautiful example of your, your work and your studies in public health in general. It's taking all these different influences, all these different facets of society, often ones that we don't think about, we don't talk about, or at least we don't want to, mm-hmm. and combining it into something that's really meaningful. Yeah, I, I think that it turns into a beautiful 
masterpiece when you take a step back and you realize, oh, wow, I learned about all this minutia. I learned all these things about statistics and I learned all these things about health promotion and I learned all these things about environmental health. And yeah, certain topics came up in between them, but I couldn't really see the connection. And then all of a sudden you're kind of thrown into the fire and you have to figure out a problem that nobody's talking about or very few people are talking about and suddenly you have an entire toolkit at your disposal to really face the issue with open eyes and preparedness. Are there any other topics, any subjects in public health that you feel like um, would benefit the greater public or at least the greater grad cast listening public to be aware of? Oh golly, well I have, I'll have an entire uh, cohort of people shouting at me if I don't mention <laughs> everything that they care about. But the th- Okay, so the one thing that I would want people to turn their eye to right now because it's very, very important is the Syrian refugee situation because that has everything in it, you know, mental health, sexual health, physical, physical health, just, just basic doctoring, all, all the things that are beautiful about a population-based approach, approach to health uh, you can find in this uh, in this crisis, but it do, it, we can from a crisis we can emerge to making quality lives for, for people who are coming into this country with essentially nothing and really turn their lives around because we've been thinking about these things for for decades and decades because public health isn't new, but now that if everyone becomes aware of it and everyone starts thinking about it, the solutions that we come up with are going to be innovative and they're going to be refreshing and they're going to tackle be able to tackle the myriad of issues that are going to hit us in the face uh, in the coming future. One of the things I found interesting is when you said, uh, you know, with your plans of becoming a doctor, you know, you study an individual patient, you study, you know, it's, it's a very customized approach, whereas you, as a student of public health, you study whole populations, right? Uh, and I'm sure you're getting, you're sort of zooming in and zooming out. You're getting a bird's eye view, but you're also getting a, a general pulse of the whole population. I'm sure that would uh, sort of influence the way you go about, you know, for example, with your plans for your geriatric care center. Well, absolutely. The, the, bu- the, the thing I've learned from public health is that because I've looked at it from a population perspective, I understand that you need to talk to the people that you are trying to help. And you might not learn that in medicine, but here's the absolute truth. You want to come up with an intervention for a population, you go and ask them, what do you need? What do you want? What's going to help you? And from that information, you'll come up with the best interventions that you could ever come up with. Well, that's really inspiring, very interesting work that you're doing. And we, everyone here at GradCast, wishes you all the best of luck in your endeavors. Thank you so much. All right, so... uh, Hey, everybody. Gradcast doesn't just rake radio shows. We are a podcast-producing machine these days, and actually only two out of every three Gradcast episodes ends up on the radio. True fact. Uh, If you want to find out more about Gradcast, go to gradcastradio.ca. And, of course, uh, we have um, openings coming up soon if you want to come on the show yourself and talk about your research or talk about your work, just as Jonathan did here. And... We can, uh, you can contact us by going by emailing gradcastradio at gmail.com. And yeah, it's going to be a great time. You guys in London, stay frosty. Well, actually, it's getting thawed out, but uh, stay, stay relevant. Stay sort of damp. <laughs> avoid, avoid reviewer number two. <laughs> That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. 
You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you.